ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I'm Scott and I'm joined today by Drew. Hello there. And also Craig. You heard that right. <laughs> yes, the Wanderer returns. So, uh, this is just another general catch-up episode of stuff what we have seen lately. So, uh, in the interests of cracking straight on with it, we'll just go straight into the chambermaid. Drew, what's that all about? In spite of the persistent stereotype, notably in the US, of Mexicans as lazy, the citizens of that country are in fact the hardest working in the industrial world. Though this in itself is not something to be proud of. It is a necessity of lax or often absent enforcement of labour laws, lack of job security and huge income inequality. Based on our own play, itself inspired by a photographic installation called The Hotel, Leila Avilese's La Camarista, or The Chambermaid, tells the tale of one of these hard-working, low-paid Mexicans, a young chambermaid in a five-star Mexico City hotel. We never see the maid, Eva, Gabriela Cartol, outside of the hotel. She has a four-year-old son who she pays another woman to look after, but we never see him. To the viewer, he exists only as a distant presence on a telephone, and he must seem like that to Eva for much of the time too. Eva is part of an army of domestic staff in the hotel, tending to the needs of the current guests and wiping away the traces of the previous ones, bodily fluids and all, to maintain the illusion of blank newness and lack of history to each room's new occupants. Even the views from the windows in the hotel's corridors are out of bounds to the staff, them being paid to be not seen and not heard. Instead, when not cleaning rooms that would be the stuff of their dreams, if only they had the time and energy left for such fripperies, Eva and her colleagues spend most of their time in the noticeably less pleasant and less well-maintained service areas. In this world, some people try to make a few extra pesos by selling plastic containers, fidget spinners and hand creams to their co-workers, and a few, Eva included, arrive extra early to take classes to allow them to earn a high school level qualification, at least until the class is shut down by the union for an unexplained reason. This is an area of private domains and fiefdoms, with some very petty displays of minor authority, such as the lift operator who says nothing when a chef enters her lift eating, but rebukes Eva later for the same thing, because she can. But it's also an area of aspiration. Eva herself, in sole charge of the 21st floor, has designs in the 42nd, a rarefied place of luxury suites, VIP guests and attendant perks. But this will be decided by an unseen management, and if workplace politics are at play, they are as opaque to Eva as to the viewer. None of the world of this hotel and its owners particularly enlightening or unusual. If you have ever seen any of the many documentaries or reality shows about life below stairs in hotels, then none of this is going to be unfamiliar to you. And there's nothing uniquely Mexican about most of it. But it's still interesting for all that, and particularly for the empathy and sympathy we feel for its star. Gabriela Cartola's Eva is captivating. Her often expressionless face still hinting at hopes, aspirations and discontentment, and her standoffishness with her fellow employees instantly understandable for myriad good reasons, starting with chronic tiredness and fatigue and working up from there. It is a delight though to see her eventually open up, and even smile, and it's then even more galling to see her dreams slapped down by the reality of her situation. The Chambermaid is in many ways a tremendously downbeat film, with its strongest theme seeming to be a fatalistic, why fecking bother, though there's certainly a broad vein of simmering defiance throughout, impotent as it may be. Cartol and Aviles together create an unsentimental portrait of this wage slave in the oddly austere and isolated world of this opulent hotel, we never see the city, except through the hotel's windows, but they fill that portrait with humanity, pathos and veracity. A few scenes are genuinely difficult to watch as a result, the tension almost unbearable as Ava looks like she might take out her frustrations in ways that would be entirely understandable but utterly self-defeating. It's not as accomplished a film, but La Camarista is a good companion piece to Alfonso Cuaron's Roma a faceless corporate modern counterpart to that film's family employment and is definitely worth seeking out. Uh, yeah, I've no major complaints with uh, this. I particularly liked that central lead performance. It is uh, quite engaging and she's asked to do quite a lot um, in carrying the, the 
the emotional heart and basically all the interesting parts of this film, which doesn't have a lot of otherwise interesting things in it. It's a fairly you know low key by its very nature uh, kind of experience, but mm-hmm. she she does really well in kind of uh, pulling that along and uh, getting you invested in her character. So that that really does help. I had a lot of uh, dialogue either. Like yeah, exactly. Very yeah. much unspoken work. Yeah, so th- that helps an awful lot. I was, I, I don't know, I, I, maybe at the end of it, I was getting to the, getting around to the sort of thinking, you know, what ultimately is the point of this? And it can come across if you're feeling particularly uncharitable as just another one of these kind of explorations and do, oh, look at the poor people, look at how the poor people also have internal lives and are complex people. Aren't I great for pointing it out? <laughs> and, um, but I'm not. I don't particularly think that is the case. Um, it does seem to come from a, a place of genuine concern and empathy. So um, in that case, it does uh, make it uh, hard to say. It's one of these films that's hard to recommend because like you say, it's kind of downbeat. There's not an awful lot of, you know, exciting headlines to be had from it. Uh, but it is a really charming piece of, like, human uh, characteristics in it that does make it for a, a fairly compelling watch if you can uh, bring yourself to, to actually start it up in the first place. Um, if you can get over that initial kind of lump of uh, going to watch a film that, you know, was basically just going to be about people working in a hotel, which is, you know, maybe not what you're in the, the, the escapist mood for at that time. But uh, yeah, it is worth, uh, certainly worth uh, seeking out. And it's certainly one of the better films we'll be talking about today. So yes, I would recommend this one. Yeah, it's, you said the right word. It's very human. It's a very, very human mm-hmm. film. Um, and I, I do um, take your point about the getting to the end of it and feeling what was the point of that? Because I, I had a bit of that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, just on a bit more reflection, I felt a little differently. And even if I had have come to that, other than like the slightly kind of fatalistic ending of it, which is perhaps a more extreme word than really it, it merits, because it sounds like something worse happens than does. Yeah, um, yeah. It's again to use the same word. It's very human, uh, a very believable, real character. Yeah, and it's really quite an astonishing performance, given, as I said, how little of it actually comes from dialogue. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's it's interesting. And no particular reason for watching this this month other than it had been on my to watch list since it came out in 2018. And I'm, like, well, <laughs> I'm going to make this a month to get around to this one then. Yes. I'm quite glad I did. <laughs> yeah. Right, so what we're going to do then is move on from a film where not a lot happens and it's very, very calm and um, <laughs> visually quiet to a film that is... <laughs> Not that. <laughs> uh, yes, this is Prisoners of the Ghostland. And just last month we were dis- discussing a rather more low-key than usual uh, Nick Cage outing in The p- uh, Pig. And I suppose the universe had to find an urgent way of returning to equilibrium. And I fear it may have rather overbalanced, as most of <laughs> Prisoners, Prisoners of the Ghostland is altogether too wackadoodle to explain, or indeed comprehend. Not, not <laughs> equilibrium, Scott. Tending towards entropy. <laughs> Here, Nick Cage is our anti-hero named Jack's Notes hero, a grizzled all-action criminal incarcerated in the stockades after a bank job goes wrong, after his erstwhile partner goes gun crazy and starts shooting up the place, including the children. Won't someone please think of the children? Uh, well, it turns out that Hero does. His guilty imaginings of the kid along the path to the redemption being the closest I can come to extracting any kind of meaning from this. Uh, ah, yes, redemption, which comes in the shape of the local evil tyrant governor, Bill Mosley, who wants Hero released to track down his adopted daughter, Sophia Botella's Bernice, who had run off into the ghostlands from the relative... Straight jacket esque safety of Check's Notes Samurai Town, ruled by the governor and his goons with an iron fist clenching a katana. So, Hero's given a deadline and an exploding leather jumpsuit to enforce said deadline, and is sent off into the wilds of the presumably post apocalyptic wastelands of uh, wherever this is meant to be set, either Japan or the Wild West. I don't know, and I'm not sure it knows either. Uh, Quite what transpires after this is, well, I'd argue not coherent enough to warrant much further scrutiny. Something about Hero being the prophesied one to free a local settlement from some sort of curse, although, of course, ultimately, it's all coming back to Hero taking on the governor's goons. It's all a mess of possibly supernatural, maybe just delirious fever dreams that Cage goes through in that typical Cage fashion, although for once, his performance is outcrazied by the rest of the visuals and 
narrative, which is a particularly inquiet blend of Mad Max, Yojimbo, or given the setting, maybe Last Man Standing, uh, Blade Runner, and whatever else was lying around. And for me at least, it never really coagulates into anything either interesting or coherent. And I've settled for one or the other, but having neither is a bit of a problem. Uh, I've been tangentially aware that director Sion Sono has been making this kind of outre fare for the past few decades, and while I've had a few of his films on my ever-expanding list of films to get round to, like Suicide Club and Tokyo Tribe, this is my first experience of his work, and it is not at all positive. Well, okay, there's a few visually arresting scenes here, and some of the action is over the top enough to be mildly interesting, but that's about it. Uh, look, I'm not going to roast this film, because I'm quite glad that it exists, and that there are still people making work at the outer limits of what's deemed commercially acceptable. And I'm sure there will be some people who will get a great deal out of this, even if it's self-evidently not going to find mainstream acceptance. It's just that, well, the thing is, I'm normally exactly the sort of person who will like this deliberately weird, hyper-stylized, feud-state narrative thing, uh, like all them Takashi Mige films, what I unloved many a year ago. And if this is not my cup of tea, <laughs> I'm left wondering whose thirst this drink is supposed to quench. Um, my advice, watch the charmingly batty trailer and just imagine a better film. <laughs> uh, I feel like you've been reading my mind quite a lot, Scott, because uh, <laughs> like, some of these things you've said are identical to notes I've made myself. Um, and I too long for the long ago before times of this slot in August when we talked about the wonderful pig and, and how nice it was to see that Nick Cage again yeah. that didn't last long and this is set in a samurai wild west town that's also in a post-apocalyptic wasteland with zombies yet it has Volvos and Toyotas and contemporary mobile phones what is this film? <laughs> it certainly looks good at points, right? It's, it's often quite stylish. And that's pretty much the single positive thing I have to say about the film. Mm-hmm. It has no characters. It has no plot. It has no point. I think there's a lot of imagery, symbolism and allegory in there. But I don't care enough about any of it to try and parse it. <laughs> and I could be wrong. It reads as all surface, no feeling. And it may indeed be all surface, no feeling. Certainly, I'd have to not have been very bored by it to even try, and that very much was not the case. Mm. And there's also like, there's weird mechanical problems with it too, like particularly, it's got this very large cast of Japanese actors speaking very heavily accented English, making comprehension difficult to say the least. Yeah. Well, and it, it's certainly a Nick Cage film. All of the dialogue <laughs> is either whispered or shouted, and everything <laughs> on the film is on fire. Uh, <laughs> But it's just such a mishmash of mishmash of genres and influences. I mean, it even references Jesus Christ Superstar at one point, <laughs> and has no identity of his own. Nick Cage is Jesus Max Pliskin in the world created by Terry <laughs> Gilliam. And while I'll grant that that sounds amazing, it's just a boring mess. Want to avoid? Watch Pig again. <laughs> I got bored of Takashi Miki while Takashi Miki was still Takashi Miki. Never mind before <laughs> Sean Soro was being Takashi Miki. I like the way this film is shot. I like the way this film is lit. I'm really shallow, so I always like the way Sophia Butella looks. Um, <laughs> and I really like the way Bill Mosley mispronounces the word, the word testicles. Um, avoid. <laughs> It's, I I don't know what this uh, this is supposed to be. The era of sort of the the era of acknowledging that man, there are some like far out Japanese filmmakers out there, isn't there? Ended yeah. conservatively twenty years ago, I think. There thereabouts, or certainly reached its apex. I think for oh, I don't know what I was going to say. I just present. I'm, yeah. Scott, like you, I'm not necessarily angry that this film exists. I just don't really know that I care one way or the other about it. It kind of is there. It's Nick Cage doing that Nick Cage thing, and I, I don't, Drew, I don't know. I, I and I'm reading from your comments that perhaps you're down on Nick Cage and this stuff. I think that of all the things that can be said about Nick Cage's career, I mean, Nick Cage is an actor. I don't know that I've seen him. Well, I've not seen him a lot recently because I tend to avoid his movies. But when I when I do sort of come across him, I don't know that I can ever accuse him of phoning stuff in. I still think he makes an effort, which is more than you can say for a lot of his contemporaries, like you know the, the Bruce Willises of the world, how how those mighty have fallen. But um, I just this 
film seems engineered to be a meme factory or something, except none yeah. of the memes that it hopes to present are actually all that interesting. And I've read a few reviews of the film leaning into that, where people are saying, oh, there are some instantly iconic moments in this film. No, oh, there no, there aren't. It, mm. it, yeah, it, it feels a bit like crazy uh, off-kilter Japanese random movies made to order, and I'm 42, I'm past that now. Um <laughs> It's okay. I don't regret having watched it. There were a couple of bits where I chuckled, but yeah, it's a thing that exists and I don't grudge it its existence. Um, It's no Mandy, is it? Well, I didn't see Mandy yet, but do I prefer this to Colour Out of Space? Hmm. Maybe. I was going to mention Mandy because you were saying like I'm quite down. The reason I'm down is well, I just thought the film was actively bad. Um, But the... yeah. The reason I'm down is because having just seen Peg a couple of months ago, I'm reminded of like that um, Nicolas Cage can do other types of acting. I don't disagree that he's um, given it his all a lot of the time. It's like, I'm just not entirely sure that I'm, I'm on board with what all he's giving and the ends to which <laughs> yeah. he's giving it. But um, Maybe it feels like he's allowing people to exploit him, really. Maybe, yeah. Um, and it, it does seem like because he has basically become a human meme. And whereas in Pig, Pig was such a subtle performance and a much, much better film, but the performance was central to it. And it's just like Nick Cage, like Nick Cage, the subtle actor with, you know, nuance <laughs> and levels and not just, you know, shouting and whispering and everything on fire. <laughs> and I have really enjoyed some of his more, let's say, um, over the top roles because as Scott yeah. mentioned Mandy Mandy's great it is one of those weird films that is both the best of things and the worst of things at the same time and I still haven't mm. decided which it is <laughs> um, and then like it's more just kind of throwaway stuff but like mom and dad that's yeah. really mm. fun and his kind of swivel eyed um, scenery tune turn on that is perfect it fits really well Whereas here it feels like, oh, well, that's what Nicolas Cage is. We'll get him for that. And then yeah. we'll have visuals to match. And it's all just a mess. This this feels really quite cynically made to measure, I think. That's a bit. And, it, again, mm. and also it's just so derivative because, like, there's, apart from, like, there's some really interestingly lit scenes, as you say, you know, some of the things that look nice. Um, I don't even actually know why Sophia Botel's in the film, though she has nothing to do. No, it's, it's actually criminal, the fact that, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you've got things like the, what are they called, rat men or something like that? They've got these kind of, it's almost like barbed wire shoulder guards. Hmm. Um, but oh, the crazy like, sort of mechanic guys who you tasked with getting the, the cars back in order. Yeah, um, and so they're sort of like interesting, but I look at that and I still think, yeah, that just kind of looks like a take on something from Mad Max. Yeah, nothing mm-hmm. that feels original. All feels derivative. Yes, does. I'm not even sure. I don't know what I took away from this. I'm not even convinced that I don't think it's supposed to be some sort of like purgatory analogy or something like that. But again, even even if it were, how tired is that by now? Um, yeah, I don't know. I I kind of liked it in spite of itself, but I'm never going to watch this again. <laughs> yeah. As I say, if there had there been some sort of character, I might have been more on board. But there's no character. Nicholas Cage is obviously set up to be like a Snake Plissken, but like with no motivation and no character at all. Um, yeah. It was like, what was great about Snake Plissken? And again, I, I'm not saying that by accident, because that feels derivative. There are the elements of Escape from New York in there. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Snake Plissken didn't give a crap about anything. Nicholas Cage doesn't mm. even have enough of a character to not give a crap about anything. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the governor guy, it's like, I guess they're trying some sort of lazy... We're coming from a Japanese director who would be less familiar with it, but it feels like there's just a, is that a cheap and lazy shorthand there. It's like, well, he's dressed like a US southern US plantation owner and therefore a slave owner. And like, with that yeah. southern drawl, well, obviously he's a bad guy. He's but, basically dressed like the Colonel Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's... It, it, it just doesn't work. Cause like, cause there's nothing there. It's like, he's, oh, the governor and... Presumably, it's just he's holding all these women hostage, but it's not actually that clear later on something happens that makes it, well, was he? Um, but he's barely in the film for most of it. And it's like, so you have a villain who's not actually in the film at all. Uh, I, just, I can't care about anything in it. That's the problem. I've got no stakes here. 
<laughs> a villain who's hardly in the film. That sounds like foreshadowing to me, Drew. <laughs> yeah, with pretty much charisma as well. So yeah, um, but mm. we're getting ahead of ourselves, Craig. Before that, uh, should we move on then to the protege? Yes, um, and talking of foreshadowing, we've talked about three of director Martin Campbell's films on this podcast before. And while we were really quite positive about his two Bond outings, GoldenEye and Casino Royale, the last time we covered him, we were considerably less enthusiastic about the disappointing and tone-deaf Jackie Chan vehicle, The Foreigner. Mm. The star here is Maggie Q, rescued from a bloodbath in Vietnam, the country, not the war, as a child by Samuel L. Jackson's Moody Dutton. A hitman who knows he's a bad guy, but makes up for it by only killing bad people. And while that's not exactly moral, it's settling a firmer footing there than the foreigner's bombs or precision weapons, right? <laughs> and also to its credit, isn't based on a book called The Chinaman, which very much is the issue. <laughs> Moody becomes a new father to the child, Anna, and raises her as his protege. And the two work together finding those who don't want to be found, and offering them. But they're bad guys, okay? After an initial mission, in which badass credentials are firmly established, Moody presents Anna with a new mission, though this time with the aim of simply finding a target. This target, though, seemingly doesn't want to be found, or at any rate, someone doesn't want him to be found, and Moody and Anna become the targets themselves. Moody is taken out of the picture, and the protégé must become the master and Anna must follow the trail back to Vietnam, somewhere she swore she would never return. Then there's some fighting, and some flirting, and some fun, and some rather brutal deaths, and some truths are uncovered. The Protégé is Campbell's first film since The Foreigner, four years ago, and it certainly hues somewhat closer to that than the continuing adventures of wee Jimmy Bond. But it's vastly more successful, and how could it not be? Samuel L. Jackson giving speeches, fun and flirty scenes between Maggie Q and Michael Keaton. Though, just don't think about the film asking you to believe the 70-year-old Keaton going toe-to-toe with Q and not being left a greasy smudge in the scenery. A decent <laughs> story hook and some perhaps unremarkable but slightly produced action sequences. The film is slight, at times so thin it falls apart, but it's a pretty fun ride for the most part. There are flaws... But the main one is the unnecessary flashbacks to show the childhood trauma that made Maggie Q. Anna's a badass. The film would have been much better served by swapping those out for more scenes of Anna actually being badass, especially because Q is both entertaining and believable in that role. The protégé is destined to be forgotten, and quickly, but it'll satisfy pretty well while you're watching it, and that's just fine. There are certainly worse ways you could spend 110 minutes, like, you know, the last film we spoke about. Not for the first time in this podcast, I will say that this is a, a film that doesn't do anything that I particularly dislike, and seems like a film that I just should have liked more. Um, <laughs> it, it, it didn't grab me all that much. It was relatively entertaining for the time I spent with it, and uh, I've, I'm already more or less forgetting most of it. Um, yeah, it is full of actors uh, that I like. It's got decent action, as you know solid direction behind and all that as well and the story's adequate enough to keep it going I feel like I should have been more into this and it was just fine and you know that is of course fine Um, but it puzzles me a little bit that I didn't like it more which is perhaps a a bit strange Um, so I kind of give it a a guarded recommendation and other than that I don't think I've got a a great deal to add about it I I agree with pretty much everything you're saying in your review so it's uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's perfectly fine. Um, I have already more or less forgotten about it, as you say. Um, but it is a, an enjoyable, entertaining enough little way uh, to spend some time. If you're in the market for an action film, it is certainly one of the better ones we've spoken about recently that I can, can't think of much that's uh, that's uh, better than it. So, yeah, give it a go. Um, but, uh, yeah, don't expect it to be blowing your socks off. Yeah, it's not one of those things you should go to pains to find, but it's. I just find it like solidly enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it really is slight, it's forgettable, but solid enjoyable. And um, it's another film which like, I never never really caught on with 80s and 90s Michael Keaton, but modern Michael Keaton, I, I think, is yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I, I said he's 70. He doesn't <clears throat> look 70. No. He's no. looking good for his age. 
Um, mm. Although again, obviously, it would just be ground to the dust by Maggie Q and an action. Yes. Type, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I like him a lot. And the, the interplay between him and Maggie Q is really fun. There's a real chemistry there. Uh, yeah, all kind of like more like a kind of um, what they're all like forties kind of film where they're ban- bantering back and forward. That's a that's a that's probably a high spot for me as well. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, it's just it's slightly enough produced. It doesn't have the problems that came with the Foreigner and Samuel Jackson at one point giving speeches because that obviously doesn't get old. It's always <laughs> fantastic fun. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's. And, we're repeating ourselves again, but forget all about it. It's, it's solidly entertaining. I don't regret watching it at all, although would I ever watch it again? It's unlikely. But I might yeah. never remember it exists. <laughs> I had I had no idea this film existed until you posted the uh, list for this episode in the Slack channel, Scott. Uh, and the only thing I can say is, remember how I said I was shallow before? I want to give this film special kudos uh, for whoever photoshopped the poster and managed to make Maggie Q look weird. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. Thanks for your input. You're welcome. I'll have you back. That's free. <laughs> right, so we're going to move on to something quite different. Although following up somebody who's worked with Michael Keaton in one of his best roles recently, that's Tom McCarthy's Stillwater Scott. What is that all about? Yes, well, Stillwater sees Oklahoma roughneck Bill Baker, played by Jack's Notes Matt Damon. Well, all right then, if you must. Um, whose daughter Abigail Breslin's Allison is languishing in a Marseille jail after being convicted of killing her girlfriend, a crime that she denies. On one of his trips to visit, Allison gives Billy letter to her lawyer, saying that she's heard third-hand chatter that someone has bragged about being the real killer. Well, that's not enough for the lawyers to do anything with. It's enough for Bill to stay in Marseille and investigate. That's stymied a little by Bill not speaking much French, but he has some assistance from an acquaintance, Camille Coton's Virginie, who owes Bill a favour, and soon the two become friends, and more than that, despite the free-spirited theatre actress and the taciturn oil man having seemingly little in common. Uh, the investigation goes well, then poorly, with the suspects uh, getting spooked and taking flight thanks to Bill's botched attempts, but another opportunity presents itself months later that leads to Bill taking rather more extreme actions to exonerate his daughter. To be clear, Stillwater is a fine enough film with a clutch of good performances and postcard pretty visuals in places, but I just could not get into this at all. Um, while I've read that the wider point of this is not the crime investigation at all, but I look at how Bill and Alison deal with their guilt about the situation and the choices it's gotten to this point, I just don't think there's enough shown of Bill's character to carry this off. And as Alison is barely in the film at all, that's not much of a help. At the risk of giving this a shorter shift than it deserves, I just don't think I've got a great deal to say about Stillwater. It's not really doing anything I dislike. The closest it gets initially, Matt Damon seems a touch miscast, but he's a good enough actor to pull it off. It is, sadly, just not a film that could find any attack surface to get its hooks into me, so it's hard to think of this as anything other than, you know, fine, which curiously makes it much harder to recommend than this episode's demonstrably worse Prisoners of the Ghostland, which at least had a car crash spectacle to it. Uh, relentlessly average. Yeah, uh, I agree with almost everything you said, apart from that last bit, because <laughs> this is a competent film with um, definable characters. Um, Prisoners of the Ghostland, very much not that. Uh, yeah. But otherwise, yeah, it's, it's fine. I had... Wanted to watch this. It got a five minute standing ovation at Cannes. It had a lot of. What do they put in the water at Cannes? Yeah, that they do that. I, I don't know. <laughs> what? Sorry, what? The most milk toast films, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it had a lot of good press and stuff, and I, th- and I was mm-hmm. interested in it. Um, and yeah, it, it's disappointing. It's well enough made, but I don't think there's any real insight into Bill Baker's character, which is kind of no. the point of the film. Yeah. Um, and I know there was a lot of talk around it. It was like, oh, Matt Damon is playing this Trump supporter. And like, but he's not. He might be, but that doesn't actually come up. Yeah. And, well, the director has said that if he were to say who he voted for, he'd probably vote Republican. But there's a lot of things he does and says that suggest that, well, he certainly doesn't match up to the stereotypes of people who would vote yeah. for that party. Um, yes, accent aside. Yes. Uh, um, seems to be. And perhaps, you know, while Oklahoma's a very red state, you know, perhaps people are a bit more, you know, sophisticated or nuanced than something simply. Well, he he's from there and sounds like that and works as he does. Well, he must vote for that. You know, people yeah. are complex. Um, and also, not <laughs> everybody in that state 
40 dreads so it doesn't even come into anyway though uh, yeah I, I think the more interesting thing around it actually is the uh, the whole Amanda Knox thing yeah um I swung back and forward about actually writing about that. Um, I, I can completely understand why she would be very upset about this uh, without getting the spoilers. Um, well, actually, screw it. Let's spoil it. Um, yeah, the, she's she's quite upset about it because, well, the character in this is clearly based off her experiences, uh, but to make the story a bit more interesting and a bit more hook, they just made her guilty. Yeah. And I can imagine if I was uh, someone who'd been through like, you know, miscarriages of justice, that would probably make me a little bit annoyed. Um, but ultimately the film just, I didn't find it interesting enough to really draw much parallels in real life. So, no, yeah. <laughs> And also, um, sort of anything I've read up to date, she still hasn't seen it. So, you know, um, yeah. I very much have to temper her opinion of it. But, it's more just not specifically Amanda Knox, although clearly that was the thing. And Tom McCarthy has said in interviews, you know, hmm. he said something like, well, a, she was a springboard to do it from, but no, you just kind of took the negative version of her story and used that for your story. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's rather than specifically Amanda Knox, it's the, kind of the more wider thing I Like, I mean, do, do filmmakers or writers or anything have some sort of moral obligation to deal with these things well when you've so clearly based on a true story and the whole nonsense disclaimer that films tend to have at the end which is, has always been bullshit yeah. and always yeah. will be bullshit of um, uh, <laughs> the, the events and people um, depicted in this uh, film are fictional and, and no reference to anything is intended or you know, inferred like, mm. no that's like yes. something kind of legally boilerplate they think covers you but it's clearly nonsense yeah. it always has been yes. Yeah. The, the, people in events, <laughs> the people in events portrayed in this film are entirely fictional and not based on any reality whatsoever P.S. I shagged your mum ha ha so yeah I, mean, I think it's more kind of interest from that point of view because you take this thing and then you take this uh, this story and the way that people still feel about her thinking, yeah. oh well no she must have mm. had something to do with it even though that was never proven and there's no smoke was. without fire Drew <laughs> uh, you've completely thrown me off my point there. Yeah, that's how weak your defence is. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a reasonable uh, discussion to be had, which I don't think we're going to have right now, but that, that there is some sort of moral or ethical responsibility you have if you're using something so real that could affect someone's life or yeah. um, something to, to, to treat it differently. Or, you know, the way Amanda Knox put it, um, and I, can't, I don't know how you would do this necessarily, but it's like, you know, if you're going to fictionalise my story, really fictionalise it, you know, obscure it more perhaps, when it's like, it's like oh no, it, yeah. it's not in Italy, it's in France. Oh, oh okay then. That's well, totally different. Hmm. <laughs> it, um, it, it, it always rankles me that, uh, yeah, I do I do think there's a big conversation to be had about um, uh, accountability and responsibility for this type of thing, uh, that filmmakers can simply plead, well, it's it's made for entertainment purposes. Um, so yeah, yeah, well, people who pretend that they have psychic powers are, are forced legally to represent themselves in this country, at least as being uh, providing a service for entertainment purposes only. But do you know what? There are people who believe them, and they make life decisions based on that. And unfortunately, those same people also watch films and draw conclusions from what is presented <laughs> presented in films. It just strikes me as incredibly irresponsible. Um, but you know how you guys um, were bombarding me with WhatsApp messages saying, Craig, uh, subscriber numbers are plummeting. Please come back to the podcast. Do you remember? Do you remember those messages? Craig, your input is so valuable. Do you remember? Yes. Yes, I remember how dirty I felt sending them, but yes, I remember. You remember, right, you remember. Mm. So, obviously, uh, my input is... Uh, you obviously value my input, and again, this is not a film I have seen, but I will say this. Scott, I'm really surprised that you follow the words Oklahoma Roughneck with Matt Damon and not Mark Wahlberg. And then mm. I look at the poster for this movie, and I think... <laughs> How is that Matt Damon's face and not the face of Mark Wahlberg? Yes. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Three out of five. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm back, baby. <laughs> it's like you never left. <laughs> it's like I never left. Oh, God. It's like I never left. So I guess, I guess talking of um, things that are back, 
for one last time anyway. Backstreet Wait. Boys. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Would you like me to talk <laughs> about... Completely derailed my train of thought. Um <laughs> Would you like me to talk about James Bond, Drew? I would indeed like to hear about the continuing adventures of wee Jimmy Bond. Aye, the continuing adventures of wee Jimmy Bond. Uh, if Daniel Craig has faced a particularly truculent enemy during his tenure as James Bond, it certainly isn't Spectre. After five movies, I'm not entirely sure who Spectre even are, or what it is they're actually aiming to achieve beyond trolling Britain's foremost fictional secret agent. <laughs> no, if he's been the victim of anything, then Craig, arguably the best Bond, I think we can all probably agree, has suffered the wildest fluctuations in movie quality of any of his peers. If you plot the relative qualities of these particular entries on a graph, you basically get a saw wave. And if you're following my logic here, you've probably come to the conclusion that No Time to Die, Danny Swansong as 007, is a, inverted commas, good Bond movie for relative values of good. And, in a lot of senses, it is. But, it also isn't. At two and three quarter hours, you might imagine No Time to Die would be a bloated affair, but if we take a step back and consider the absolute mess of plot contrivances that director Kerry Yoji Fukunaga has the unenviable task of wrapping up, it's perhaps understandable he'd want to give himself a bit of wiggle room. The plotting of No Time to Die isn't all that complicated on paper, but one of my chief gripes is that the script, courtesy chiefly of this generation stalwarts Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, with a much vaunted pass from Phoebe Waller-Bridge, makes a pretty good fist of making it feel an awful lot more labyrinthine than it actually is. For the first time in my life, I've had to field a WhatsApp message from my mother asking for clarification of a Bond plot, something I was able to do in a short paragraph, yet Fukunaga et al. seemed to struggle to squeeze into two and a half hours plus change. For what it's worth, which isn't much, Rami Malek's horrendously underutilised antagonist Safin has designs on unleashing a DNA-coded virus enabled by a kidnapped scientist whose disappearance is perturbing enough to her old CIA friend Felix Leiter that he rouses Bond from five years of retirement. Safin wants to use his technology to kill millions for... insert reason here, but first demonstrates its utility by turning it on his villainous comrades at Spectre, wiping out the entire organisation, including Blofeld, at a stroke. As if this shit isn't enough to be getting on with, it's all tied into Bond's relationship with Madeline, played again by Leah Sidhu. With the pair's relationship since the last movie, somewhat soured by a resurgent spectre, framing her for their actions in this entry's opening scenes, set five years prior. For the most part, No Time to Die doesn't feel its length, which is probably an indication that I had a good time watching it. And I did... I did have a good time watching it, at least maybe two-thirds of its running time, and I have enough goodwill for Bond and Reserve, I suppose, that will take a slightly saggy back nine if the payoff is worth it. Which, well, I almost can't believe I'm saying this, but I don't think it is. Fukunaga does a pretty good job of assembling the flat pack mess he's inherited, and I kind of expected he would, given prior form, including the first season of True Detective, which remains, in my humble opinion, an absolute high point of TV history. However, I can't help but wonder what Fukunaga could have come up with if he was allowed to develop his own Bond story from a blank slate, because, ladies and gentlemen, if No Time to Die has one ace up its sleeve, it's that it leaves us with one very blank slate. Technically, the film exhibits all of the precision-machined competence one would expect to buy for such a budget with great cinematography, sound design, scoring, and, probably, catering. While the villains are dealt a pretty lacklustre hand in terms of character development, there's enough time spent with Bond and Madeline that I suppose I ought to have cared more about them. But I didn't. I suppose, too, I ought to have been excited at the introduction of interesting new characters such as Paloma and Nomi. But I wasn't. The death of a significant series favourite, two-thirds of the way in? And of the movie's final minutes, which seem to have been crafted solely with the aim of reducing me to a blubbering wreck? Well, I wasn't. And I honestly can't believe I wasn't, and that's how I know there's something wrong here. To be clear... No Time to Die is a pretty good Bond movie, comfortably in third place among Craig's entries behind Casino Royale and Skyfall, in which order of preference you may have for those two. The problem might not even be with James. Maybe after the last 18 months, I've just changed too much. It isn't you, Danny. It's me. Anyway... 
I left the cinema oddly unmoved by this final entry in the Daniel Craig era, and while I can't put my finger on it, I just know that it isn't right. There's a good chance, I think, that Fukunaga may be asked back for the reboot. I really hope so. I really do. But I also hope that if he is asked back, they let him do his own thing. Yes, um, not for, for the first time in this episode. I feel like you've largely been reading my mind. Mm. This time it's you and not Scott. I, Sorry I about that. <laughs> First of all, I was worried about this film for quite a while when I saw the running time. What mm, business you and I both. A, what business does a Bond film have being nearly three hours? Well, the answer to that is obviously none. Uh, but for all of that, I didn't really notice the time. Mm-hmm. So presumably I also was enjoying it and I did enjoy the film. And I, for some reason, because I'm weird and stupid like this, I watched Spectre again before seeing this. Partly just to confirm that, yes, it did steal part of its plot from Austin Powers and Goldmember. And when I went back to watch that, I realised it had forgotten that Spectre's two and a half hours long nearly. So it's not the first mm-hmm. time they've done this. And, it's, and oh, sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt your flow, Drew, but I do also offer you and Scott an apology because having revisited it last year at some point, I can't remember when, whatever, I do realise now that Spectre is absolute <laughs> yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I, I find it somewhat less this rewatch but because I didn't expect anything I, I knew the was coming so uh, you know um, <laughs> no new has come to light <laughs> I was more just bored by it whereas uh, like Spectre yeah. is offensively stupid and tremendously boring and one or either of those can be overcome by other things in the films but both yeah. of them together no yeah the one thing a Bond film should not be is boring that hmm. I can I can <laughs> deal with it being poorly paced I can deal with it being over long I can deal with it being stupidly plotted but I will not accept it being boring and actually you guys were right and I was wrong it is on record there there you go Spectre is pretty boring and that yes. equals bad and I wonder it's because of like the message left us that you're talking about what the director had to work with here it's nothing like as bad fortunately I liked The Last Jedi but it feels a bit like in some way sort of undoing stuff that was done in the film before the way that Rise of Skywalker did with The Last Jedi mm-hmm. um, although sort of the other way around I guess in terms of quality but having watched this this film has done the quite incredible trick of making Spectre worse right? <laughs> Um, and it really has been things like you know after all that stupid retconning inspector, you know all these villains. Oh, that was me. Get mm. bent, um, yeah. and then completely wasting the awesome Christoph Waltz on a like, really terrible implementation of Blofeld. But they, they set up Spectre, this incredible initiation with tentacles everywhere, the greatest threat the world has ever seen. Then a few minutes into Spectre, into No Time to Die, nah, Spectre's no biggie. Bye bye. <laughs> and mm-hmm. what should be like the ultimate villain? Just gone that's yes that's the thing they press the reset button on spectre and that's a pretty bold move actually and you think oh that's interesting jesus this guy's going to be this is going to be something else and then he's a total non-entity yeah Hmm. so yeah they they take this like spectre and blowfield make him completely meaningless like you you undercut your three films before that by suggesting they're somehow connected to this and then like well no nothing nothing none of it matters Yeah, then they replace him by this this terrible villain who has no charisma at all. Mm-hmm. And that's when you can even hear a word he's saying mm-hmm. because Rami Malek decided to mumble his entire performance <laughs> for some reason. Um, and then it's the same sort of boring world-ending plot that's never interesting because you, you never you know exactly how it's going to end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but what is this plot? He's going to kill some unidentified group of people. Why? Eh, enormous shock. Right. I, was there an explanation yeah. of specifically who he's targeting and why? Because I feel like I've—I only saw it on Saturday morning. I finally got a chance to see it on my own on Saturday morning, and I don't remember. Obviously, he wipes out Spectre, right? Fantastic. I understand why he would want to do that. But who was he targeting after that? Why was Nobody. I think? I think the I closest think- you get to it is that bit where Bond is talking to M, and it's, it's just saying, "Oh, you know, the usual power." world domination yeah. that sort of thing it's it has never gone to any depth and uh that's i don't know if that makes it better or worse um 
I had to go and check what I said about Spectre because I've forgotten it and haven't seen it since uh, the cinema back in the day. But I think my primary criticism was that it's, it it was trying to kind of bridge the kind of more grounded bond with the world domination, spectre you know, classic era bond kind of plots yeah. and not doing a particularly great job of it. And for while I was watching No Time to Die, I felt this was doing that same trick a bit better yeah. um, by being a bit more mysterious. But I think by the time you get to the end, and certainly by the time, I only saw it yesterday, but I was thinking about it today, and again, it's one of these films that the more you think about it, the, the further it falls apart. The less um, it works, it, yeah. Yeah, it, it just realised that it was trying to be a mystery, but ultimately it didn't actually have any answers to that mystery. It's, it is very much the, um, well, the plan's very much that, you know, step one, <laughs> you know, step one, <laughs> steal underpants. Step two, you know, question marks. Step three, profit. Um <laughs> I think they were very, very careful, actually, to specifically not target anyone. You, you have the scientist, yes. and he's talking to Nome at one point, saying, you know, <laughs> people of West African origin, I could theoretically engineer that to wipe them out. Yeah. I think they were very, very careful to not put any specific threat in there. It's just like, oh, it's just random people, um, yeah. but it yeah. doesn't work as a threat. Uh, no. so, so, yeah, just that bothered me. And so you've got this charisma-free villain mumbling his way through a plot that nobody cares about. But I mean, it's annoying because there were bits I liked too. I mean, I, I, I didn't, as much as it's a beautiful piece of music, I didn't care to be reminded on a, of On Her Majesty's Secret Service because, you know, <laughs> I've seen it. Um, <laughs> yes, well, but, you know we'll agree to disagree on that. I don't mind that film at all. I don't mind it, but it's not good. Um, it just has the second worst bond. I mean, there's, there's all these films with Daniel Craig have had, like, reference to other films. I, I appreciate seeing the Aston Martin from The Living Daylights, which was half mm-hmm. of a good film. <laughs> and an interesting Aston Martin. There's a um, lot of um, callbacks and fan service and trying to wrap things up, and it's, it's all very knowing yeah. in, in yeah. that sense. And, uh, I mean, like... I'll put this on the table. Like, I would recommend that anyone with even the slightest interest in Bond, you definitely watch this. You'll watch this yes. in the cinema and you will enjoy yep. it. Yep. Yep. I thought- probably just don't try not to think about it that much when you leave the cinema. Just go, that was a that was fun, and then leave it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, probably the best one. We're, we're, doing, we're doing spoilers though, right? Yes. Right. End okay. Episode. Like, from this point on, consider spoilers. Yeah. So uh, I grew up absolutely loving the sort of the classic Bond movies. And the first Bond movie I saw at I the cinema did, was. What's that? I think we all did. Yeah, we probably all did. And then the first Bond movie I actually saw in the cinema was Goldfinger, which was the first big sort of reinvention of Bond, which it turns out now in retrospect wasn't that much. Yeah. What's that? Do you mean Goldeneye? What did I say? Goldfinger. Goldfinger. Oh, Jesus Christ. No, I'm not that old. Sorry, Goldfinger. Show, show your age a bit there, Trey. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Goldfinger, the first big reinvention. Uh, no, uh, Goldeneye, the first big reinvention with Brosnan, which in hindsight obviously isn't that big of a reinvention, actually, because it's, most of Brosnan's films weren't that far adrift of uh, of, uh, of of your man, Roger Moore, uh, and, and his outings. So I think at the point at which I matured and became an adult, uh, it was just about the right time for me to be thinking, yeah, those were a bit silly and misogynistic and trashy, really, aren't they? And I can still enjoy them for that. Uh, and I still care a great deal about them. But I think age-wise, we're, we're probably very well positioned to appreciate the sort of reimagining of the character with um, with Daniel Craig, which has been a sort of really fine balancing act between acknowledging some of the shortcomings of, of Bond's both in uh, literature and the movies of old and a much more contemporary style of filmmaking, which was sorely lacking by the, mm. or maybe actually like really misdirected by the end of the, the Brosnan era. Yeah. But, you know, for, for the worst entries, I, I know you guys know that, you know, I, I find certain things to like about Quantum of Solace. I don't think it's as bad a film as would be generally um, yeah, uh, perceived. Yeah. I think given its circumstances of creation, it's kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing the fact that it's actually a film, right? But, yeah, um, it's um, essentially improvised. Yeah, yeah it's, exactly. Just Casino Royale one point five from it, and it's yeah, yeah, it's not bad. We um, we spent one hundred and fifty million dollars on an improv piece, basically, and it, <laughs> it turned out not to be an incoherent mess. Fair enough. <laughs> People seem to bitch about the fact that the plot revolves around water, as though any MacGuffin <laughs> in any Bond film ever has ever had any consequence or given you know, the 
the plot. This is this is one of the more realistic ones. Exactly. The yes. plot of Quantum of Solace is one of the most realistic ones there is at the moment. Yes. I think. Um, <laughs> apart from uh, Casino Royale, because of like the money, maybe not interesting. But believable because Casino Royale was small stakes; it was playing financial markets and stuff. Yeah, That's, in, fi- um, in fifty years' time or a hundred years' time, I can imagine there might be a war over some sort of diamond-powered space laser. But do you know what? I can imagine <laughs> a war taking place over tomorrow: the scarcity of natural resources, yes, <laughs> um, particularly water, and it also is already happening. Yeah, absolutely, and stuff where like um, water has become privatized and not available yep. to the masses of the population. Actually, uh, absolutely. Happening. Entirely legitimate plot. Absolutely. But as tourists, we can all pay to go and see the beautiful salt flats or (laughs) or dry lakes, as the rest of the world might refer to them. Um, So uh, I I know I I feel like I've got a huge emotional investment in in Bond. I feel like I've kind of grown up with James Bond. I don't know how you guys feel, if if you feel the same way about it or not. I don't know. But I just think it's a remarkable feat to get to this point where we have a movie which is which is tooled to develop Bond the most he's ever been developed in a film to make him a father of a young daughter and you guys know how I feel about my perspective changing how every film now suddenly I realise that every film seems to be about a father-daughter relationship <laughs> and at the slightest hint I will just start to well up. I think it's absolutely remarkable to take that as a plot device and here, like double spoiler alert. Skip forward five minutes if you're if you don't want to know what happens. To then kill James Bond, and for me to walk out of the cinema, well, to kill James Bond as he's on the radio talking to his 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 love, discussing his daughter, <laughs> and then for me to walk out of the cinema five minutes later and go, eh. <laughs> and not to really have felt one way or the other about it. I, I still haven't parsed my thoughts about this properly and I still don't know that I can have some any kind of cogent discussion about it. I just know that something's wrong there. I was just going to I, mean, I did feel something at the end, but I wonder if that plays differently for people who really know the Daniel Craig bond, whereas mm. I've known, what, six bonds, seven bonds? Yeah. I've lost track now, depending quite how you count it, uh, having seen the entire series and been watching them since I was a kid. So it's like, yeah, it, it. They're trying to do this, but this is kind of an interchangeable characters. You know, it's going to play be played by another actor in the future, and has been played by several in the past. And I mean, at least they didn't do what the start of on Her Majesty's Secret Service did there, mm-hmm. breaking the fourth wall. But it's like, um, yeah, kind of, <laughs> that's one of my favourite mm-hmm. moments in the entire franchise. I know, and I hate it with a passion. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's like bother like. If you just if you really only know the Daniel Craig ones, whether you might feel like quite differently about it, yeah. Because if you you know all the other Bond stuff, you know, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of an interchangeable character. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, the, uh, when I, when Craig snuffs it in this one, Daniel Craig, not yourself, obviously. Um, yeah, <laughs> thank I, God for I, that. <laughs> I, I I mainly felt about it the same way I would have felt if a Marvel character dies. It's like, well, they'll probably bring him back. Yeah, or some yeah. version of him will come back. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't have the same kind of emotional resonance. Like you say, if it if it had been something, yeah, if Bond only existed in the Daniel Craig continuity and there hadn't been all the rest of it, and we hadn't seen umpteen different people playing Bonds, then you know, it, it might have felt yeah. differently. Um, as it was, it just sort of stands. When it happens, it's just more of a oh well, that's an interesting way to set up the next <laughs> lot of Bond films, isn't it? And it, it kind of there, there was something about the kind of meta ness of it that kind of dissolves some of the emotional impact. I don't know if that's just because it was... That last section does go on a little bit too long. It yeah. does, for me, it does drag a little bit too much. That's the only criticism I really have of it as a, as a Bond film. I thought most of the rest of it I really enjoyed. Um, some great action bits. Um, mm-hmm. lovely, love some of these new characters as well. Um, I thought most uh-huh. of all did pretty well. I like the way that M kind of falls apart over the part of it as well. Um, lots of really nice bits in it, but that section at the end in the volcano base, um, or sorry, um, <laughs> missile silo base, it just goes on just that bit too long and kind of repeats itself a bit and there's a bit too much of just running back and forward down the same corridors you know it, it feels like one of those levels in Halo where you're going through a library so it's just all great yes. corridors for a while it's a bit too much and that by the end of it, it was like okay I'm, I'm ready for this to end now and then it ended and it was like okay thank you for that and I was ready to go and it, it, it really undercut some of the you know emotional heft that it might have had if it had just been a bit tighter in that last act yeah, yeah. even also, even, even Bond's disinterested he's walking down <laughs> these shadowy corridors 
Rangers and he's in the middle of a phone conversation and he pauses briefly every five seconds to shoot another sort of like anonymous goon <laughs> in the shadows in the head like absolutely without even having to bother aiming it's just like oh, oh god sorry two seconds bang bang right sorry what were you saying even he's disinterested by that point just cut that five minutes out yeah. <laughs> also Scott you were saying about the Marvel thing and that's just it's in general just I, I feel the same way but and also in general with the the infection of their post credit scene I had to stay to the end of this film to check that they didn't have a scene right at the end where he somehow <laughs> miraculously got out of the explosion because I would yeah, not have been surprised yeah. I mean pissed off obviously but I did not be surprised but um, unfortunately as I got to the end of it the thing that I th- think every single James Bond film has had certainly most of them well, it did say at the end Final scene, a final letters on this screen. Yeah, James Bond will return. So yes. I was hoping they hadn't changed that, but also at the same point, it's like, yes, it doesn't really count. <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. what I was going to say, Drew. I, I, so I went into this. I didn't wait to see if there was a pros post-credit scene because I think I knew there wasn't I had read an article which claimed to be spoiler free but the article basically ended with uh, but don't worry it does say at the end James Bond will return brilliant well that's not spoiler free then is it because I've got at least two brain cells to rub together so I'm guessing then that James Bond (laughs) James Bond dies at the end of this so I went in expecting it and I actually I had made up my mind beforehand that I felt that that's what needed to happen and I had a really definite picture in my head of how I would have liked it to play out. I just don't think I was expecting it to be this. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't say like James Bond will return would mean he's dead because that's it, it's, it's in every film. Um, yeah. Very often associated with the name of the next one because they'd planned that far in advance. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's more just checking for like they, they were keeping that and hadn't broken that tradition. But yeah, the, the endings are a bit <laughs> underwhelming. And maybe for the reasons we've talked about. Um, and, you know, it's like, okay, he dies saving the world, but that's not what he always does. Hmm. Um, yeah. like something maybe a bit more personal. Because that, all that kind of world-scale stuff just leaves me cold. And it always has done. Um, well, yeah, they, they try and mix and match that, because ultimately that's yeah. kind of the reason why he doesn't make much of an effort to really escape, even... Uh, admittedly it doesn't quite work that way um it's like they tried to add their cake and eat it on that one um you know yeah. that's the reason he couldn't return to humanity is because of the the old virus thing and well, narrow bots and how it would spread to his family yada 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 yeah. um, and eventually but, get to his girlfriend and his daughter yeah yeah so so th- that's kind of how they were trying to get it a bit more personal at the same time as being not in no way personal at all because he's <laughs> on an island far far away from them so it, it doesn't quite work again it's like it seems like one of these things where they would the writers have had a couple of different ideas and sort of just thrown them together. It's 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 not exactly stuck together, but it's more or less just hanging off each other enough. Uh, yeah, it, it doesn't quite work, uh, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah. Do you know what but- I think it might be? Is throughout this arc of these five Daniel Craig movies, I kind of feel like I know I've I've read a few articles about the sort of development of his character and the sort of acknowledgement of um, modern mores and whatnot. And yeah, he is a sort of... I think one of the reasons that we probably appreciate Daniel Craig, and I think most people who are sane would probably agree, he's the best James Bond. I know we probably ought to say Sean Connery out of some sort of misplaced (laughs) notion of national sentiment, right? But let's be honest about it objectively. In terms of, in terms of being a movie star and bringing a character to screen, Daniel Craig has been and will be remembered as the best Bond, probably for some time to come. Because I, I, that character is inherently shallow to begin with, so yeah. I don't know how you could possibly portray him that much better than Daniel Craig has anyway. But I do feel that there's an element of. Um, dishonesty around character development because throughout these films he has remained a remorseless killer and relatively emotionless apart from his fixation with Vesper to the point where this film begins with him and his his new partner who ought to be the love of his life but basically starts with a conversation between them being hey listen, do you want to go and visit Vesper's grave? Because you never (laughs) shut up about Vesper, and I really think you need to shut up about Vesper. So (laughs) shall we try and draw a line under this? That's about as developed as his character has been, and I kind of wish there had been a much more even arc throughout these five movies of his development towards being a human as opposed to a murderous automaton, because (laughs) you kind of get to the end of this movie, and it's two and three quarter hours, and in the last five minutes it's... 
well, I'm a dad now, so I ought to care, so I'm going to make the ultimate sacrifice. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. That's an awfully that's an awfully steep curve on the on the graph of uh, of of emotion against time. There, that's an exponential curve all of a sudden. I would have liked to have seen that character de- in retrospect. I must say, yeah. I would like to have seen that character development play out a little bit more across the five movies. But it does feel like killing machine, killing machine, killing machine, killing machine. Dad, ultimate sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, and also, like, especially when you think, oh, what about all the other people he killed? Didn't they possibly have children? Especially you know, Drew. Like, yes, nobody thinks of the henchman. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, like Austin Powers really had that spot on. Like, <laughs> all the henchman dying. It's like he's just a henchman. He's in the henchman's union. You no, know? it's like, he just yeah. goes to work like everybody else. And the number of like faceless henchmen that are dispatched. Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I don't know. For all that though, I still enjoyed it. And you saying Scott about very much like you should recommend going to see it. I left the cinema and wanted to go and see it again. Yeah. Mm. For all the issues I had, I was yep. immediately I was ready to go and see it again the next well, maybe not the same day, but the next day I'd have gone. And I probably will go and see it while it's still in the cinemas again. Um and it's more just a frustration for me in general, this film. Because there's so many things that are that are bothering me, you know, like like how does MI6 have the resources to create Heracles? Why, why is there a giant poison farm? Why giant poison farm? Why? Why do you make nanobots by having like what appears to be a canal that you um, stir? Yeah. Like, yeah. That, yeah. Really? Really? Ra- with randomly <laughs> scattered fluorescent tubes. How does that help? And then um, you know, Safin apparently rescues Madeline by firing an assault rifle haphazardly through the ice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> weird rescue but then but then I'm thinking you know, don't think about it don't think I can't not do that and I really don't want to not think about stuff but I was fighting it I was mm-hmm. fighting it and that yeah. was the most frustrating thing it's like you've done so much else right film be better <laughs> I I, I don't know like, sorry sorry Drew just going to say like, back to the thing, <laughs> thing well it, it's quite good to set up in the one of the opening scenes that um, Bond was bomb proof since he had to be grenade proof later on. Um, <laughs> you know, explosions don't work like that, but okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, you've just had a bomb in your face, so you could run it off in a couple of minutes. And that's handy. I am. Um, I, I, I don't know what they're going to do moving forward. I mean, one can only assume a reboot, but now Amazon are involved. What I suspect will happen are they? is. I haven't heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that haven't Amazon sort of got some bought some sort of shared rights to shared rights to Bond now. Oh, I missed that. Okay, I'm pretty sure they have. So I think oh, what's probably going to happen? Did they buy MGM or something like that? Something like that. that. So I'm familiar now, actually. Yeah. yeah. So I suspect what's going to happen is like four to five years of of Amazon using Bond as a Marvel analog, basically, uh, to sort of combat Disney Plus, <laughs> and we'll have all sorts of spin-offs on, like every minor character you can imagine. You'll have like um, you'll have a cooking show with Q, right? I feel like that's what this film was setting up. Q likes to cook, brilliant. So we'll probably have some sort of series around Q cooking, right? And they set uh, up that film that Q's gay because he talks about him coming round for their date, um, and that's it. Yeah, they'll, they'll um, do sort of a, a feint towards inclusiveness by making a minor character gay, but they couldn't do it with Bond, and they won't do it with Bond, just like Disney. You, yeah, and you know what's frustrating about that? There was that scene where Bond was tied up in the chair in uh, Skyfall. Bardem. Yeah. Yep. Yep, 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 that was getting really weirdly sexual and I thought that was, I thought something amazing was going to happen there and then it was never referenced again and that is probably the single most interesting thing where I think Bond, he makes some throwaway comment about, oh, you assume, I, oh, I can't remember. There's there's some basically innuendo. first time, I think, something like that. Yes, <laughs> right, exactly, right. And I thought, oh, we're going to go somewhere interesting here. Never mentioned again, right? Because this thing, you could just... Um make Bond pansexual and it's mm-hmm. actually quite interesting too because in terms of like doing his job it may be that he just like needs to like, let's disregard the fact that he's actually the world's worst secret agent because apparently yeah. the world has always known his name yeah. um, but like to do his job I guess like he may have to sleep yeah. with, with lots of people so like just make him say he just, just doesn't care 
He's the most amoral, remorseless asshole on the planet. It, it doesn't matter to him whether he's sleeping with a woman or a guy. Exactly. Yep. So they could have done something really interesting there. But I suspect we'll get four to five years of every minor character you can imagine and uh, like young Bond or something like that. You'll probably have like, oh, here's a series about James Bond uh, and, and his naval career, etc. We'll get a cartoon about his uh, young nephew. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You'll get everything. You'll probably have a spin-off series about Bond's postman, probably, thinking yeah, every right. every every week it's like a different letter gets delivered to Bond's house and the postman imagining what might be in this amazing hyper-secret letter, right? You'll and, have all and that. young Bond's going to be his daughter. That's what they'll do. Yes, well, of course it is. But I suspect we'll get four to five years of that, and then when everybody's forgotten what was actually happening, they'll just reboot again, and they'll just do another origin story. I expect that is probably what will happen. But what I do hope happens, because obviously, um, you know, Barbara Broccoli and um, what's his name? It, it completely escapes me now. Oh, um, the guy with Michael the moustache. Michael yeah. Wilson. Michael G. Wilson. Um, They've got a history of sort of like finding a director and sticking with them. They like to stick with them. And Kerry Yoji Fukunaga, when I, like, you know, three years ago or whatever it was, when I first heard that he was on board, I'm like, oh, right, okay. There's a certain baseline of quality that I'm pretty sure this is going to deliver. He's working with other people's material. What I would love to see is them do a Martin Campbell and bring him back for the start of the next cycle, but allow him to develop it from the start and just see what a Kerry Yoji Fukunaga uh, pure Bond film looks like from the start. And I think that might be something really interesting. And that's really what I hope happens. I cannot tell you how much that's what... I will I will put up with avoiding Amazon spin-off for five years if I get that film, because I can almost guarantee you that's probably going to be the best Bond film of all time. I just really hope it happens. I really hope it happens. Oh, so we just thought of another um, case of like being lumbered with a hack, like Guy Hamilton or something. Like, you know, <laughs> Sion Sono. Sion Sono, Nicolas Cage's Bond. Um, <laughs> does that wrap that up? I think it does. We could probably talk about Bond for hours, but um, I think that's all we do need to say. We could now, and right? we have and we probably will again in future. <laughs> yes. We do have an entire episode on all of the other Bond films if you want to listen to that. Yes. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, some Bond knockoffs as well. <laughs> yes. I kind, of, I kind of want to go back and do individual episodes per film now, in retrospect, now that we have seen the closure of, quite conclusively, the closure of the, the Daniel Craig era. I don't know if you guys will be on board for that, but um, I kind of want to revisit every previous Bond film in the context of what we know now. I'll be up for that, but as long as we also cover Operation Kid Brother again, because that's amazing. <laughs> because that's amazing. And I still have such a crush on that actress whose name I can't remember, who's got the gap in her front teeth. <laughs> oh, she was cute. Right, so that will wrap us up for today. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us for this reason or any other, please do so uh, through email at podcast at com, on facebook.com slash fudsonfilm or on twitter at fudsonfilm. And until next time, we shall bid you adieu. Take care of yourself and each other. Goodbye. It's so nice to be back where I belong. Dooby-dooby-doo. <laughs> Hasta luego. Oh, you're right, listeners. How have you been doing? I'm sorry I left you all in the lurch. I'm sorry I left you with these two. I know what it's been like for you. I've had to put up with this for... What? Oh, my God. The best part of 30 years? Three decades? I know. But I'm back for you now. I'm not fishing for it, but I hope you've missed me. It'd be lovely if you said you had. I hope you've dreamt of me. I know I've dreamt of me. It's hard not to, really, I suppose. But I'm here now. You don't need to worry anymore. I'll look after you. And, well, listen, I know what these two are like. I know them better than anyone. But they mean well. They don't mean you any harm. We'll get through this together. And, uh, yeah, I'm here for you. I just need you to know that. All right? Nice weather we've been having, eh?